Hello, welcome to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Executive Director Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with Dr. Daniel Livesey, an Associate Professor at Claremont McKenna College in California and a Library Research Fellow. If you haven't heard, our acclaimed exhibit, Lives Bound Together, has been extended through 2020. If you have not been out to visit, more information about this exhibit can be found on the website for this podcast. Now we join Drs. Butterfield and Livesey in the studio. Well, tell me about your recent work. I know that you published a book last January. Is that right? That's right, yeah. On, on um, mixed-race uh, Jamaicans. Tell me a little bit about uh, that project. And I, m- I might start this way. At, at the end of the title, uh, there's a, a couple of years mentioned, 1733 and 1833. We'll start there, weirdly enough. But tell me about Jamaica in, the, in that time period. What, 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 what do we know about Jamaica? What, was it, what kind of place was it? Sure. So Jamaica, to me, is an incredibly fascinating place in the 18th century. Um, I like to tell my students that it's probably one of the worst places in human history. And I don't mean that hyperbolically. I really do believe it was a pretty horrific spot. Um, For people that don't know much about the Caribbean in the 18th and the 19th centuries, it was a spot that created a tremendous amount of money for European empires. And most of that money came from sugar plantations because um, this is sort of the era where people are getting accustomed to sugar. They're putting it in their coffee. They're putting it in their tea. They're using it to preserve food, mm-hmm. and sugar just an incredibly profitable crop. And it really only grows in kind of this tropical band. It grows well in this tropical band where the Caribbean islands are located. And, um, you know, in this sort of early modern period, there's a belief amongst Europeans that this, is, this location is too hot and it's too difficult to farm sugarcane for European bodies, that European bodies can't do this. Mm. And so there's this justification that only African laborers can undertake this really uh, brutal labor of harvesting sugarcane. So uh, literally millions of Africans are brought to the Caribbean, and the Caribbean is one of the biggest recipients of Africans. So the Caribbean and Brazil are the two biggest um, contribute, you know, probably 70 to 80 percent of all Africans that are brought over go to mm-hmm. those locations. And so Jamaica is a real hothouse of, of slavery, and in the 18th century, there are about 10 enslaved blacks for every free white person wow. uh, in Jamaica. And it's just really kind of this spot where people are trying to make as much money as quickly as they can through the oppression of enslaved Africans. And so it's just a really, really brutal and horrific place. Um, it has some of the worst cases of slave treatment in part because that demographic difference between white and black makes a lot of white people incredibly nervous about is mm-hmm. there going to be an uprising? And, and there's uh, sort of actually regular uprisings in the Caribbean because of that numerical disparity. And so because of that, um, if we kind of look at the records, a lot of planters are much more brutal towards their enslaved workers, in part because of that fear. Much um, more so than, than in other places. Absolutely, yeah. It's, just, it's, it's, it's a really, uh, you know, uh, Trevor Bernard is a fantastic historian of this period, and he really says it's just kind of a society that never goes from a patriarchal authority to a paternalistic authority. It's just always a patriarchal authority. Mm. It's just this sense of trying to be as brutal as possible in order to keep... Uh, that society contained. So, uh, so that's kind of the background of Jamaica. It's, it's a pretty awful place in this period of time, but it's also a really central place too, because again, it's making so much money. It, it far outranks any uh, colony in North America in terms of its profitability. Mm-hmm. And um, really, until the 19th century, it's kind of the economic jewel in the British Empire. And um, in North America, a lot of uh, 
merchants and traders depend upon commerce with Jamaica and other Caribbean islands. And a lot of Africans who go on to North America, they stop over in Jamaica first. So mm-hmm. it's a really crucial hub in a lot of these Atlantic networks in the period. So tell me about the, the, the years that you chose. I, I think I have a sense of what 1833 is, but go ahead and tell us. Yeah. Uh, but also, why 1733? Tell us. So 1833 is important because that's the year that the British Empire abolishes slavery. Mm-hmm. And so that's obviously a pretty crucial moment when you're talking about a society that's so dominated by enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Um, and 1733, that's a little more particular to this project. Okay. And so uh, the this book is about uh, mixed-race children in Jamaica who get sent off to family and friends in Britain to kind of undertake an apprenticeship or to go to school. Um, And this is kind of maybe the weird outset of Jamaica, which is that it is really the society that's dominated by enslavement. Um, But there are these weird kind of outgrowths in that civil society. One of that is that one of those weird outgrowths is that um, you have a pretty large mixed race population that emerges in Jamaica. How large? Um, So probably by the end of the 18th century, probably about 10,000 people or so. And that comes about because there are um, a lot of white men that come to the Caribbean to be plantation overseers or to have their own plantations mm-hmm. or to try to you know, eventually become an owner at some point in their lives. Um, but it's not seen as a proper place for white women because it is so unhealthy there because there's a thought that it's, uh, it, the tropics are just not a good place for women to go to. And so you have this big gender disparity between white men and white women. Um, And then on top of that, the sexual predation against enslaved women is just a major part of how uh, white owners intimidate their enslaved populations. Mm. So there's a lot of sexual violence that's going on. There's also a lot of interracial relationships that are going on. And so you get a pretty large mixed-race population in Jamaica that emerges from that. And in most cases, those children are just kept in slavery if the mother is an enslaved woman. One of the you know, and a lot of the listeners probably know that in most forms of American slavery that the child follows the status of their mother. Which so, is a complete inversion of, of how the common law normally worked, right? You inherit the status of the father. Exactly, yeah. So if you have an enslaved mother, you are enslaved. And so a lot of these enslaved or these children that come about from mixed race relations or interracial relationships, excuse me, um, they stay enslaved and their, their fathers just don't care, right? I mean, this was mm-hmm. in most cases... Um, an outgrowth of sexual violence. But um, but in a not insignificant number of cases, and I, sort of best estimates of about 20% of white fathers do actually emancipate those children. And in some other cases, they take care of them as if they are um, legitimate children and ones that they have a lot of affection for. And so I was studying that group of people who um, their that fathers, that, that sort of 20 or, or a little bit less than that, those who their fathers emancipate them, but also are trying to make sure that they can be raised in a kind of family relationship. Hmm. And they send them off to Britain because th- there's really no schools for these children to go to in Jamaica. Again, because it's all of the concentration in that society is on making as much wealth as possible. And so to build schools is kind of a diversion. And, right. you know, you could put a sugar plantation there. So why would you do that, right? Hmm. So there's, there's really no sco- very few schools that they can go to. There's not a lot of economic opportunities because there are a lot of laws that um, are very discriminatory towards mixed-race people. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of fathers and the mothers themselves who are really kind of pressuring these fathers um, send those children off to Britain because there are a lot of schools there and they can become an apprentice or maybe they can marry someone when they're in Britain. And so the the book was looking at why and how families respond to these these relatives of theirs in Britain. And they're responding to these relatives who look like them but also have African ancestry. And for a society that hasn't had a lot of contact with people of African descent, 
it's a very confusing thing. And so the book is trying to look at what the, the kind of racial negotiations are within these families. Hmm. And to get back to your original question, I know I've kind of gotten off the path of that, that's but okay. the, the, the chronological question about 1733, um, that's a really kind of interesting moment in the history of Jamaica, at least in terms of this issue around mixed race people, because it's a moment in which Jamaica, the, the legislature in Jamaica, makes kind of two big decisions. One is that they decide they're going to disenfranchise all mixed race people. Up to that point, mixed race people, if they had enough land, they could actually vote in elections. And, um, you know, it was it's kind of racial laws hadn't really solidified around really strong racial animus at that point, um, at least for people who were free. Yeah. Um, so they, they decide suddenly that no longer, you know, if you're mixed race, you are no longer allowed to to take part in that civil society. Mm. But then they also decide that we should figure out what it means to be mixed race, right? I mean, that's a pretty broad concept. And if you're going right. to make this strong legal determination, what do you actually do to determine if someone is mixed race? And so they decide, they come, they come up with this this kind of calculation, which in some ways is, uh, is derived out of Spanish law, mm. which is that if you're more than three generations removed from an African, you are legally white. Is this You're the quadroon, octoroon kind of thing? Yeah, so they, they have a kind of a different term for it, but yeah, but basically, you know, the the first generation would be, you know, between a white person. So if a white person and a black person had a child, they'd be a mulatto. Mm -hmm. If a mulatto and a white person had a child, they'd be a quadroon. And so on and on. So after that third generation, you're not in any kind of like mixed race category. You're now legally white. Mm -hmm. And Jamaica is one of the only British colonies to allow for that. Virginia actually has a tolerance for a short period in the 18th century where they allow for this as well. Um, but Jamaica is kind of one of the few societies in the British Empire that actually allows for this um, this non-one-drop rule of racial descent. Hmm. And so it creates a, a lot of subtleties around race, which seems paradoxical for a society that's so dominated by racial oppression. Um, and so that's sort of where I think the bulk of that investigation starts for me is this moment in time in which Jamaicans are allowing for that space of tolerance. And part of the reason they're allowing for that space of tolerance is that they need more white settlers, in part because they're so worried about an enslaved uprising. And so in their mind, this is a way of kind of solving that problem is, well, if we can create white settlement and white settlers from a mixed race population, wow. then we can maybe solve this demographic problem that we have of not having enough free people to serve as a kind of security bulwark against this large enslaved population. Wow. So p part of, of your story uh, uh, tells us about their, the experiences of these children in Great Britain, but I'm assuming also that as they become adults and as they, they go on to live their lives. Mm -hmm. um, is there a story that stands out to you, a particular uh, uh, figure that you might be able to use as a way of telling us about the broader story that you tell in the book? Yeah. If I can be so indulgent, I might actually yeah. tell you two stories two. because there's there's sort of a change over time story as all historians okay. like sure. to make, right? Yeah. So one of, and, and they're sort of complementary in certain ways. So one is of the Morse family, and the Morse family are really interesting. Um, they are uh, these mixed race children. Their mother is a very elite mixed race person. Their father is a kind of plantation owner. He's very elite himself. And um, they leave Jamaica in 1761 when there's a big enslaved uprising called Tacky's Revolt. And so their father is concerned this is going to, you know, they might die in this revolt. And in fact, they, the uh, enslaved uh, rebels actually burn part of his plantation. So they all flee to London. The mother stays behind. And in almost all of these cases, the mixed race or the black mother never goes to Britain. It's always the children are sort of go off by themselves. But their mm -hmm. father goes with them. They go to Britain. 
And um, uh, one of the daughters marries a very uh, wealthy English lawyer. Um, one of the sons goes into the army and, and sort of rises pretty high in the ranks of the army. Another son goes off to India. Um, he, he studies the ends of court. Uh, he wants to, to become a barrister in wow. India to try to make some money. His sisters follow him to India, end up marrying two very prominent East Indian merchants there. They all go back to Britain. And then they lead these very, very elite lives. They have a, a portrait commissioned by Zofany, or Zofany is the, the artist, I should say, um, of, the, of their family. Um, they get into this huge legal battle with their cousins over their father's estate. And they basically live like very, very elite Britons. And there's almost no mention of the fact that they have this Jamaican ancestry. Wow. And in fact, future generations don't even register that this is part of their ancestry. And I think part of it was they were trying to tamp down on that because... Uh, they could be subject to Jamaican laws still that could dis- disinherit them in certain cases. Um, but really, they have almost no problems assimilating into, into British society. And that's they come over in the 1760s. And what I argue in the book is that's a period in which, again, the racial lines are still a little bit amorphous, especially in Britain. Um, it's before you get this really radical anti-slavery activism that's going on. Right. And so people haven't really thought as much about race in this period of time as they would in later decades. And so I think there's more of a willingness to accept these relatives into British society. Mm-hmm. If you fast forward about 40 years, um, there's another family who actually this was, they were the first family I ever found out about and got me into this topic. Oh, I see. And it's the Taylor family. And and the Taylors, uh, the, the patriarch is a guy named John Taylor, and he was a Scottish merchant who goes to, to Jamaica at the end of the, the 18th century, has children with an enslaved woman, frees them, sends them off to England to, to go to these really elite private schools. And one of the, the eldest boy, uh, James Taylor, he uh, actually gets an interview with the East India Company as well. Um, but he gets an interview right after the company has prohibited anyone of non-white ancestry from joining the company. When so, did they do that? I'm sorry? When did they do that? They did that in 1800. Mm. And they do it because actually John Taylor's neighbor also has mixed-race children in Scotland. And he sends his child to get an interview with the company. And they detect that he looks a little bit dark-skinned. Mm. And they decide not to allow him in. They say, you know what? We're really concerned that if we have these mixed-race people, they might create trouble if we send them on to India. And so they decide no more people who have any non-European ancestry. So this becomes a big problem because James Taylor, he has slightly dark skin according to some accounts and they're not sure if he's going to pass this test. They think that, you know, he's he, he, the jig might get off or, or be, be up when uh, he goes into the, the interview. Mm-hmm. And so they're not really sure what to do. So they, they spend like a week putting makeup on his face to see if that kind of tamps down on the way he looks. They cut his hair to see if that reduces what they think are African traits. They put him in different colored costumes, or not costumes, but clothes to see if that will diminish his supposed complexion. Uh, And so there's this great fear that he's not going to be able to get into these elite channels and networks. And it's part of what I argue is sort of this big transformative change by the end of the 18th century where Britain's because they're becoming more invested in this issue of slavery, because anti-slavery activism has become so big, because the Haitian Revolution has really transformed the way people think about West Indians, um, Britons are less and less excited about incorporating these individuals into their families. And so because of that, um, you start to see more and more discrimination put against them. So you actually see racial, racial prejudice getting worse over time in this period. I think historians, we tend to think that, oh, well, there's this kind of, or people oftentimes when they think of history, they think, well, there's this kind of this linear progression where things get better and better. But in right. fact, in this story, things start to get worse and worse over time. Mm. And, and what happened to James Taylor in the end? He ends up passing his his uh, interview, um, although uh, there's 
his uncle notes that there are lots and lots of complaints later on that some of the the directors who passed him were kind of nervous that perhaps he actually had some African blood and they mm-hmm. weren't sure and they were nervous that they had been lied to. Um, but he goes to India um, and he doesn't really like it there. It's a really tough assignment. Um, and then his his records just kind of dry up and he's not to be found again. And oh. I searched for months and months to try to locate what happened to him um, after he gets to India. But um, it's hopefully a, a a future and better historian will find out what happens to him. But the records basically dry up. And there are also some questions we just don't find answers to. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay. In the midst of the chronology you just laid out there, uh, there is 1776. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about how the American Revolution uh, plays a part in what you're describing. I, I have a, a memory of some uh, uh, broader repercussions of the American Revolution on how the British thought about slavery. Uh, but talk to me about that. Is there is there a correlation here between... Uh, in this 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 hardening of racial ideologies that you mentioned the Haitian Revolution, but uh, does the American Revolution play a part? It does. You know, I, there's a great book by Christopher Brown called Moral Capital, which mm. kind of addresses how the American Revolution becomes an important springboard for anti-slavery activism in Britain. And there's a number of facets to that book, and I'm going to be kind of do it a disservice by just summarizing it here. But but one of them is that it it really. Uh, forces Britons to rethink what is their empire and what is the, sort of the virtue of this empire. And if we've kind of done wrong enough to create all this animosity in our American colonies, what can we do to create a more virtuous moral empire? And so that, in a lot of ways, pushes anti-slavery activism much more strongly um, in Britain. And the whole debate about why the slave trade ends is a very complicated one, and it stretches back for decades and decades and decades. The slave trade um, ends in 07? In 1807 for the mm-hmm. British, yeah, okay. and in 1808 for the United States. Okay. And but, but one of the things that the American Revolution does is it really, I think, brings to the, the forefront this idea about freedom and what it means, and are enslaved people part of that system of freedom? It also inspires a lot of enslaved people to rise up themselves. And so um, there are conspiracies in the Bahamas and Jamaica. Eventually you get the Haitian Revolution, which in no small part, I think, is inspired by the American Revolution. Um, And so it it just transforms what freedom means in this big Atlantic space. And so for Jamaicans, it it forces them to rethink what slavery means, and it forces them to rethink what is the, the space of toleration for free people of color, especially as they witness the events in North America going on. Are they going to want their own rights? Are they going to want more rights? Yeah. And in fact, that's what happens in Jamaica. You see these very elite people of color who come back from Britain. So the, the story doesn't end with these children going off to Britain. Many of them come back to Jamaica in the hopes of becoming sugar planters themselves or coffee planters. Um, and they come back bearing this very elite metropolitan upbringing education. And they demand more and more rights in keeping with what they see as the sort of spirit of enlightenment and the spirit of freedom hmm. that comes out of the American Revolution. So they're absolutely inspired by what's going on. Are any of them coming back to be slaveholders? Absolutely, yeah. They're not necessarily anti-slavery activists themselves. Interesting. Um, but they do believe that there should be a greater space of meaning for what it, what it means to be free, right? That it's not just... Um, a narrowly racialized definition of freedom, but that freedom means freedom for everybody who's not enslaved, right? So they're not necessarily the most progressive people in the right. world, but they, they're trying to create a broader space that incorporates non-white peoples into the, the category of freedom. Fascinating. Well, it's, it's a, uh, 
an amazing accomplishment that, that you've you've completed this this um, expansive study of of, uh, of uh, a fascinating population that I don't think a lot of people had been thinking about before. But uh, for all the expansiveness of this project, uh, I think you're off onto something maybe even more expansive in some ways. Uh, I hope not too expansive. <laughs> well, well, we'll find out. Um, but you're here at Mount Vernon, uh, beginning uh, or not not beginning, but certainly continuing work on a, on a second project. Help me a little bit about that. Sure. So there's still a little bit of Caribbean focus in this new project, but um, I'm here because I'm I'm expanding into the Chesapeake, which has been really exciting uh, and really daunting. And there's so mm-hmm. much to learn, and there's so many great people to to learn from. Uh, and what I'm I, at the end of the the last book project, one of the things that I was kind of noticing from time to time was that when I was looking at kind of anti-slavery activists and pro-slavery supporters and seeing how they kind of interact with one another, there were lots and lots of defenses, but forward of slavery and lots of attacks against slavery. And I found this really curious thing that there were a lot of pro-slavery supporters, both in Jamaica and then I kind of eventually found out in, in the Chesapeake as well that. They were saying, well, you know, slavery, it can't be that bad because we have these workers on our plantations who are 160 years old. And, and if you ask wow. them, you know, they, they serve my great, great, great grandfather. And so if it was such a bad institution, why are they living to such old ages? And I found this with enough frequency that I, I thought, like, this is such a bizarre claim truly, that people are making. Bizarre. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't take them at their word that they actually lived to these ages. And so I was just curious why they would make that claim. Yeah. And so I, I kind of started to get invest, looking into that aspect of it, but it really just got me thinking generally about well, what does happen to enslaved people when they reach very old age? Because um, just I think by virtue of the way that the sources work for slavery, um, plantation owners and overseers, they're most concerned with the period of life of an enslaved person when they're producing the most amount of profit for that plantation, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so much of slave studies um, for historians have focused on kind of, you know, that the, the young period of life and then the sort of um, at most kind of late middle age or something, right? when, when people are um, getting the most kind of records uh, about them based on the fact that they're working at their hardest. And so I just thought, well, this is a part of the life cycle for enslaved people that I don't really know much about. And as I looked into it, there have been bits and pieces written about this, but really nothing that was all that expansive on what this final stage of life was. And so I I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to learn more about a sort of unexplored period of enslaved life. And so I started to think about it, and I thought, well, it would be interesting to compare two locations um, just to kind of see what sort of differences emerged. And so I decided to compare Jamaica, which I knew a lot about, mm-hmm. um, where I knew that there actually weren't a lot of old enslaved people because it's such an unhealthy place and because the, the regime there is so brutal that a lot of people just don't survive to old age. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to compare it to a place where, um, relatively speaking, it's not quite as brutal in terms of the work routines and the the... Uh, geography of the location is healthier so that people can actually survive to old age. And so the Chesapeake is kind of the model society for that. I see. Where um, it, it's, you know, by the middle of the 18th century, uh, uh, plantations in Virginia have kind of self-reproducing enslaved populations, and they sort of are much closer to a normal population uh, compared to Jamaica, where you're, they, they have to have imports of Africans just to keep that population stable. So I wanted to compare those two locations to see what their respective enslaved societies were like and what old age was like for those enslaved people in those two locations. And to, to, to go to the, the, the jarring anecdote that you mentioned of, of, of listing people that are 150, 160 years old, um, 
I, I, I recall a story of P.T. Barnum having a, a sideshow, uh, a famous uh, a person. Uh, tell me a, a bit about her, but also, because um, uh, I, 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 it's a story I think we, we, we've all, I think, maybe heard once in our life, but it's a fascinating window into who P.T. Barnum was, but also into uh, the, the, the exact question that you're studying here. Uh, and, and tell me a little bit about this, this absurdity. I, I can't quite wrap my head around, uh, I mean, I would be just as impressed that they had said these people are, are 80. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I don't know, uh, what if what are, what are you thinking about the absurd absurd levels to which the stories would be told? Yeah, the, the, so the, the P.T. Barnum story you're talking about uh, involves a woman named Joyce Hath. Mm-hmm. And Joyce Hath was P.T. Barnum's very first human sideshow. So this was the very beginning of, of Barnum's career as this kind of, um, you know, su- you know, uh, uh, showman, I guess, of, of early America. Mm-hmm. And what he does is he finds sort of this very old enslaved woman. She was probably in her 60s or 70s. You know, she was not that old. Um, and he, he basically hires her to pretend that she is Was, was George Washington's nurse when he was a child. Wow. And he claims that she's 160 years old. And so and he makes up, he forges documents uh, saying that she was sold you know, in the 1730s and, and basically kind of creates this narrative about this unbelievably old enslaved woman. So um, so Barnum goes off on that, that journey. It's an incredibly popular exhibit for him. And uh, there's been sort of a, a lot of great work on this, especially because Barnum was such an interesting figure. Right. And what I, I would say about why the public at that time is fascinated by someone like Joyce Heth is, is there's a couple of reasons. One is that uh, in the 1830s when he's parading her around, um, there is this fascination with the founding fathers because, you know, that generation is dying off mm-hmm. and people, as they're forming the ideas of what the United States is and what the identity of the U.S. is, um, they're, they're trying to find connections back to that founding generation. So Joyce Heth, because of her relation, her supposed relationship with George Washington, she kind of represents that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second part of this is that I think, uh, and maybe there's side parts of the second part, but but... Part of it is I think it's it's a process of dehumanizing people of African descent by claiming that they, they are not subject to natural processes and that they're right. not human beings in the way that we understand human beings. They weren't simultaneously live. telling stories of 150-year-old white people, right? Those stories rarely exist in the same frequency. So there are, there are accounts of people of incredible longevity, but by and large they tend to be of people from non-European backgrounds. So there are people from Asia, a lot of records supposedly of Indians, East Indians, and, mm. and South Indians who have lived to 200 years old. Wow. Um, so, so there are certainly cases of very old people of European descent who are listed, but not really to the same frequency as those who come from different ancestral um, origins. So I think it's part of the dehumanization process. But then finally, I, I do think that it fits into this idea about, you know, the sort of paternalistic defense of slavery to say, well, because these individuals have lived to such old ages, it reveals that slavery is not a horrific, brutal institution. It's very benign that people could live to those ages and that they're still serving um, and they're still loyal. It shows that it's not as bad as people say it is. Hmm. So part of what we've been chatting about is the sort of um, uh, conceptual conclusions people can draw from from the story. But I, I, I gather that you also want to explore the, the lived experience of, of old age and slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of your early discoveries there? 
Yeah, well, let me say first off that I've just been overwhelmed by the records here. It's been, okay. I've been used to Jamaica where people don't talk a lot about their enslaved workers I or, see. you know, they just don't have much person. They don't really interact with them in the same kind of personal ways. And uh, it's just mind blowing the degree to which Washington kept records about his enslaved um, laborers mm-hmm. and the degree to which I think he kind of knew them in a personal way. And so um, I'm just kind of sorting through a lot of that. I've been trying to grab as much information as I can. But but I would say the one thing is that he does really have, he knows these individuals pretty well. And when he's talking about people like Old Jack or Old Doll, um, he really has a lot of information at his disposal about who they are, what skills they have. Um, so he's writing about them pretty regularly, and he's writing about them in ways that, that demonstrate that he has a kind of personal rapport with those individuals. Um, and so it's been interesting to see kind of what transformations have occurred in those individuals' lives as they age and as they get older and as their bodies break down and they're transformed into supervisory roles or into roles where maybe they're just knitting socks and things like that and doing less really aggressive labor. So that's been really interesting to try to trace those roots, and I hope to do a lot more with that as I kind of sort through the data. Um, but, But it's also just interesting to see the way that these elderly individuals inform Washington's sense about the future of slavery and just his idea of slavery. I think that he does have a sense of paternalistic um, affection, if you want to call it that, for these elderly enslaved people. But I think it also complicates his sense about, you know, if his if his plantations are even manageable going forward. I think he's conflicted about how economically viable slavery is going to be in the future, which was true for a lot of Virginia planters at the end of the 18th century. It was, you know, a lot of plantations were failing in that period of time, and they were having to switch over to different types of production. And I think that he sees in some of his elderly laborers uh, a concern that perhaps this institution is rotting a little bit on the vine. And so they almost stand in as metaphors for what the future of slavery is for, you know, for the old dominion. Wow. Well, fast forward uh, a generation beyond that. Uh, and we get to the 1850s when, of course, the fe- we know the future of slavery was short, but uh, others didn't. Uh, and as I understand it, Uncle, Uncle Tom's Cabin will play a, a, an important role in your work here as a way of looking at some of these same ideas uh, in, a, in a different context, particularly one in which the, the argument against slavery was, was fully coalescing uh, and, and by the uh, early 1850s. Um, for those who don't know, maybe tell us a little bit about Uncle Tom uh, and uh, how this is connected to these broader depictions of slavery, uh, both on the pro-slavery and anti-slavery side? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Uncle Tom's Cabin is probably something the book people have heard about. Um, There's a kind of famous anecdote, which is apocryphal, that, uh, you know, Lincoln meets the author, Harry Beecher Stowe, and says, so this is the woman that caused the Civil War, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not true. There's no evidence that he ever said that to her. But Uncle Tom's Cabin was the second most popular book in the United States for the whole of the 19th century. It was second only to the Bible. So it gives you a sense of just how much of a cultural impact it had. And the story is really about the damages of slave sales, so separating families um, and sending people to different plantations. And so in the story, Tom is sold, and um, it's a a very long and interesting story, but uh, the real central drama comes around the fact that Tom, who is... I mean, he's almost like a Christ-like figure. He can do no wrong. He never says a bad word about anybody. He never um, even contemplates whether or not his enslavement is a good or a bad thing. He just kind of goes with what he's told. Mm -hmm. So he has no kind of um, rebelliousness, which would turn off 
a pro-slavery supporter. He's a very, very loyal person to the, to the extent that he's even just kind of going willingly when he's, he's sold off. And it's really about kind of the abuse that he suffers under that as a way of kind of uh, uh, reaching to an undetermined audience who's not sure about slavery and his future and whether or not slavery is a bad thing. It's really trying to put his abuse um, the sort of foreground that to say slavery is a really horrific institution and the way that it treats even the most vulnerable of the enslaved reveals just how awful this is. And so what I'm trying to argue is that part of the reason why I think so many people become interested if not obsessed by this book and why so many people who are kind of on the fence about slavery, um, how this book kind of pushes them over towards an anti-slavery stance, is that it plays on a longstanding interest with elderly enslaved people that goes back to those earlier debates and goes back with that fascination with people like Joyce Heth, who, you know, supposedly reveals how great this institution is. By kind of subverting that idea or switching it to say, no, in fact, slavery is horribly damaging to these elderly people that we should be protecting and who are incredibly vulnerable. Mm. I think it really... Uh, galvanizes public opinion against slavery. And so it, uh, what I'm trying to show is that this interest and engagement with elderly enslaved people um, that becomes such a touch point uh, with the publication of Uncle Tom's Cabin, it has a very long-standing history. And that's part of the reason why that's, that novel is so important in American history. Well, this is important work. Uh, thank you for coming to Mount Vernon to uh, pursue this research. And thank you for talking with me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.